Have you ever noticed that there are certain words that almost demand you say them with a funny accent? One of those words, for me, is the word preposterous. Because it's a word that you would only say if you were declaring something. That's preposterous. And I don't know why, but it demands kind of a funny British accent. I think the only way I could say that word with any kind of real feeling and not use a British accent is if I tried to override it with some other accent. Like maybe, uh, that's preposterous. There's, I don't know, how do they talk in New Jersey? Maybe I never can remember. <laughs> I had to work with that lady too. Good grief. People don't say preposterous much anymore. It's kind of an old-timey word, and it's kind of a cartoony word, I guess. Preposterous meaning that something is absurd or ridiculous. But I like to look at words like that that have fallen out of use and think about where they came from. And this is one of those words that when you look at the building blocks of it, it's very, very straightforward. It's two prefixes and a suffix. It is pre-post-urus. Pre means before. Post means urus means Dinosaur, right? Nah, I mean, or us is just makes it an adjective. Like you've got danger, but then something can be dangerous. Well, here we have before, after, us. But it's something that is so completely backwards, we've put the before, after, and the after, before. It has been inverted, and it is logically absurd. The notion of preposterous means that you have gotten it as wrong as you possibly can. And that, I think, is how most of mankind approaches our relationship with God. Backwards. We put the before-after and the after-before. And that is what Paul was laying into during this entire beginning of chapter 2 of Ephesians that we looked at last week. That we were not able to be saved by works. That idea is preposterous. That there are no works, whether they are religious rites and rituals and, and self punishment and, and meditation, or whether it's going off and doing some volunteer work with all of your spare time, there are no works that could possibly save you. You're getting things backwards. And the thing that's, that, that's backwards is the idea of doing and being. Do we do and do and do and do until we finally become good enough to stand in God's presence and holy and righteous? Or do we become holy and righteous in the sight of God and therefore do what we would do as the children of God, what would be expected of us? Notice, though, that in neither case are works removed from the equation. And I think that is a big problem in the church today. There's always overcorrection. As humans, we always want to take the pendulum from one extreme and bring it over to the other. And so Paul has made it just crystal clear as possible in the first uh, eight, nine verses of chapter 2 that there is no way that we who were dead in our trespasses could possibly, by works of the law, by our good deeds, become righteous or be saved and so people have written that all the way to the other side to say all right if we're not saved by works then works play no part whatsoever in fact i'm a little bit suspicious of anybody who emphasizes them they must be a legalist they must be into works salvation well that is not the picture that paul paints for us at all here works are an integral part of things they are just not the cause of our salvation they are not the means of our salvation. They are the result of our salvation. And a simple reading of verse 10 here tells us that they are actually the purpose of our salvation. Or at least a purpose. 
Ultimately, the purpose that God has in saving us is his purpose in all things, to bring glory to himself. But having been freed from the hopeless, useless treadmill of trying to earn our salvation, have been freed from the bondage of sin, and having been saved, we are now free to pursue good works to the glory of God, not to the glory of self, not to pride, not to legalism, not to any kind of human religion, but to God's glory. Of course, we looked at the first nine verses last week, and I want to focus in just on verse 10 here today. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And notice that it begins with the word for. And this is a question I haven't asked in a long time, but you have to remember when you're reading the Bible and you grab a verse and it starts with for or therefore, you ask What's the therefore, therefore? So many verses that we have memorized, and I think many of them rightly so because they're very important doctrinal ideas, but so many of them begin with therefore or for to the point where we think of that as just kind of bible language and we don't stop and ask what's the therefore, therefore. The word here, the word for, it's the Greek word gar, which I always say like a pirate and I don't know why, but gar, it's a connecting conjunction. It continues a thought usually by providing a reason or a cause. And so when you come across a verse, even a famous verse, and it starts with four, for example, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3, 16, or a verse that we looked at last week and read again this week, for it is by grace you are saved through faith, or uh, for God has not given you a spirit of timidity and fear, but of power and of a sound mind. When you come across these things, I think it might help sometimes to swap out the word in your mind for, for so that, or because. Just so that you can say, wait a minute, I'm getting half a thought. I'm getting the second half of the thought. What is being built upon here with this clause that begins with for? And in this case, what's being built upon is that very famous passage we looked at last week, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. And you see that that was building on what came before it. But God saved us by grace through faith. Nothing we did contributed to it. What you brought was the sin that needed to be forgiven. What you brought was the filth that needed to be washed away. What Jesus brought was the righteousness, the mercy, and the grace to do all of that. So that, or because, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And so we see here, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. That word for is very, very important in all of this. And I want you to recognize, therefore, that the word good works is not a four-letter word. In fact, it's not one word, it's two words, and it's nine letters and a space. So it couldn't be further from being a four-letter word. It's something that we should think about in the church, not something that should make us feel guilty. Oh, I've got to drive to do some kind of good works, therefore I should be sort of suspicious of my theology or guilty about it. There is no contradiction here whatsoever with what came before. In fact, there's a confirmation. 
If we are God's workmanship, and He is the one at work here, and He's even prepared for us before we were saved, the works we would do after we were saved, well, then there's no way that our works are what save us. It all goes together. There is a great danger in going from one extreme to another and leaving the tension of sound doctrine behind in the middle there somewhere. But we always want, we want to take this sacred, mysterious document written over the course of millennia by scores of people, and we want to make it very, very cut and dry and simplistic. Some things are good, some things are bad. Tradition in the Bible is bad, right? Jesus said just as much when he said that you have followed the traditions of man instead of the teachings of God, therefore tradition's bad, right? Except when it's good. In Jude, contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. That is a tradition, a good tradition. Leaven is bad, right? That's why there's unleavened bread, because leaven always means sin or false teaching, like the teaching of the Pharisees, except when it's good, when a little pinch of leaven represents our spreading of the kingdom of God, where it spreads then out through the entire lump. The number 666 is bad, right? The mark of the beast, except when it's good, the amount of gold that's presented to King Solomon. Then you hear all sorts of different things, where we want to go to the extreme and say this simply is bad or good. Alcohol is bad, sex is bad, uh, movies were bad. When I started at my Christian college in 1996, by the time I got done, movies weren't so bad anymore. I don't know. But anything can be bad if it is misused, if it is lifted up to the highest place, even above Christ. Anything becomes problematic. And so if we are suspicious of our doctrine, or if we are suspicious of another Christian because of an emphasis on good works, as long as the good works have not been lifted up too high, we have to say, hold on, repent of that, and remember what we read in Ephesians 2 and verse 10. There is a theological tension here, but it is a beautiful tension, and we find it throughout the scriptures, especially throughout the New Testament. Jesus taught very clearly I am the Lamb of God. In fact, this, uh, John the Baptist even declares that before Jesus' ministry starts. He says, here comes the Lamb of God. Behold, he's going to take away the sin of the world. Jesus said, my, I've come to lay down my life a ransom for many. If you will be saved, it will be because Jesus did the work on the cross and walking out of the empty tomb. And yet, Jesus also in Luke 6 teaches, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? It's Jesus who says, if you hear my words and do not obey, you are like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, and when the storm comes, flattens the whole thing. How can he teach both of these things? In fact, it's Jesus who teaches in the parable of the sower that if the seed of the gospel has landed on a heart prepared by the Spirit and, and taken root in good soil in your heart and you've truly been saved, what will happen? It will grow and bear fruit. The fruit, of course, being good works and that a good tree produces good fruit a bad tree produces bad fruit john the baptist as well before in his ministry said go repent and do good works worthy of or bear fruit worthy of repentance there's that same tension here in ephesians 2 8 through 10 you're saved by grace through faith it's not of works no works nothing you could do but it's for good works which were prepared beforehand we see this tension in a lot of different passages throughout the scriptures. Titus 2, 
We see one that's it's not too hard to reconcile. We read our great Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There we have Jesus doing the work and us doing works. But we see again at the end, zealous for good works. It's not by good works, it's for good works. A little more difficult would be Philippians 2. This is one that Protestants often trip over and it it vexes us. We read in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we stop and say, wait, am I doing this work? Work out my own salvation. But then the next verse says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who's at work. Yeah, your good works are important and they they help you to work out your salvation. Recognize it's God who's at work to will and to act. Of course, here's the most famous and perhaps the most controversial of all these passages. James 2.17. We got the context when Steve read it for us. But that, that passage that says faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And we stop and say, how can that correspond and coexist with Paul's teaching that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. I think John Calvin defines it very clearly for us when he says, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Yes, you're justified by faith alone, but that faith can't be alone. Like, things burn in fire, but there's going to be smoke if there is fire. Right? That, that there is no such thing as a faith that justifies and then just sits there and does not manifest itself in good works. So we see works without faith are useless. Faith without works is dead. And that is where we stand. That is the tension in which we live. And there's a great emphasis on good works in Jesus' teaching. If you love me, obey my commandments. And throughout the New Testament, whether it's Paul, John, Peter, James, whoever that is writing, There is an emphasis because, and I don't want to oversimplify things, but I might suggest that the role of good works for the believer is to serve as sort of a litmus test. You remember the actual litmus test you would do in chemistry class? You take the little strips of paper, you dip them in the solution. If it turns, let's see if I get this right, if it turns red, it's acidic. If it turns blue, it's alkaline. Before that, they didn't have the paper. You had to just put your finger in. When you pulled it out, if it was just like bones, you're like, oh, that was acid. Okay. Now we've got the paper. That's good. But putting the little strip of paper in does not make it acidic or alkaline. It simply reveals what it already was. That's the role of works. Revealing what is going on on the inside. Because there's no stopping it if what has happened on the inside is actually legitimate, was valid. So, so yes, forgiveness is free, but true forgiveness implies some forgivenness on the part of the one who's forgiven. Aaron and I, uh, when we were dating, and we both lived in Grand Rapids, and we were engaged, and we would often go back and visit her parents, and go to her parents' church, there was this kind of odd fellow I like to talk to, and uh, he, he kind of cracked me up, he was funny, he was a... Just, just, weird guy. And I'm a weird guy. We got along. And one day I said, hey man, how you doing? And he said, oh, I'm doing great. I feel really good. I'm on a soup diet. I said, you're on a soup diet? Interesting. 
I'm surprised you feel so good. I mean, all you eat is soup? He's like, oh, no, that's not what it is. He said, oh, okay, but you eat a lot of soup, right? Eh, not really. He said, do you eat any soup? He's like, um, no. I didn't say it, but I wanted to say, buddy, you're not on a soup diet. It's easy to say, yes, I am forgiven. Where is the forgivenness? You're not on a soup diet if you're not eating soup. And so this is what Paul is laying out for us here when he says, we are his workmanship. The word there is poema in the Greek. It's where we get our word poem. But unlike 95% of poems, which are terrible, this describes skilled work, right? In fact, the, the New Living Translation says we are God's masterpiece. And I don't think that's an over-translation. In creation, what comes last, I will make you in my image. That was the greatest creation I will make. And then he caps it in the climax of all of his work by redeeming us even when we had turned from him and fallen. This is the, the climax of his work, and it is his work. God is the one at work. You see this very clearly in the word order in the original Greek. Here, for we are his workmanship. His is the fourth word. In the Greek, it's actually the first word. It says, his for we are work. In order to emphasize the idea that it's him, his work. Don't try to take any of the glory for yourself. He is at work, and his work will then overflow out of us in love and mercy and good works toward our brothers and sisters in Christ, toward our neighbors, even toward our enemies, because he is at work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Take that noun, workmanship, pair it with that verb, created, and it starts to fill in the picture of what God is doing here. Yes, he frees us from the bondage of sin and death and raises us from death to life. We call that regeneration. But he doesn't just raise us as the same old, same old. We are now a new creation. Something new is happening. And this idea of regeneration goes hand in hand with this idea of recreation when we describe the new birth that happens in Christ. When someone says, Lord, I put my faith in you, I turn from my sin, and by the grace of God they are born again. They pass from death to life and become a new creation. When Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven, I love that this, this ambiguity. That phrase born again can actually also mean born from above. When you're born again, you're born from above. Born again, regeneration. From above, recreation. God is at work here. This is something entirely new. And this idea of creation and resurrection, they permeate the book of Ephesians. And when we put them together, they shine a light on the fact that anything worthwhile that is going on in this story of mankind has been supplied and secured by God alone, not by us. I don't know if you're aware, but there is a presidential and other elections coming up now. We are, I, I, I've gotten a little bit cynical. I, I look back and say, well, good grief. I see that it seems to be at every level of government that we say, things aren't going as the way I want them to, so we'll elect these people. And then we go, oh, they didn't fix the problems the way we want them to, so we'll, now we're going to elect these people. Well, then we go back to these, then we go back and forth and back. That is not the picture of what's going on here in the new birth. You see, in the new birth, people often think of, I'm going to dig down deep, I'm going to find my better inclinations, I'm going to find in myself 
my best instincts and desires when in reality it's not electing a different uh, committee within your own heart. It is a violent revolution overthrowing everyone and casting the old order out so God can uh, essentially put a new government in place. By union with Christ, we become something entirely new. We now are on our face before the Savior rather than sitting around a boardroom saying, hmm, let's give this another try, maybe over here. You know, you remember that movie Inside Out? Great movie. But rather than different emotions and, and different impulses coming to the, to the uh, joystick and, and controlling us at different times, that whole crew is gone. They go down and where Bing Bong went and everyone cried. And in comes Jesus to sit at the helm. This is a new creation. We were created or recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is again. For good works. There's two kinds of works. The first kind is the works that, that are motivated by and in response to law. Right? So, so the kind of works where it's, I need to do this or... I will miss out on blessings. Or I need to do this or I will be separated from God. I need to do these things or I'll go to hell. Or maybe I need to do these things and I'll have life more abundant. I need to do these things and I'll live my best life now. I need to do these things and I'll be happy. That might sound like two very different things. Those are all the same category. Law. Law motivating good works. The other kind is good works that are motivated by grace. It's not, I need to do this and, or I need to do this, or it's, I will do this because it is now my nature. I long to do these things, and I love to do these things, and I'm looking to do these things because this is my nature. I'm a new creation. I was created in Christ Jesus for these good works. I think we see this very clearly in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the story. I'll tell you anyway. Jesus said there was a man, he was on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. As he was going, he gets jumped by some thieves. They beat him half to death. They leave him naked, bleeding, just a, a wretch there on the ground in this pass. Now, walking along comes a Levite. He sees him. He passes over to the other side and walks right by him, pretends he didn't see him. Then comes a priest. He sees him. He passes over to the other side, walks right by like he didn't see him, and then finally comes a Samaritan. This is a very twist-ending, M. Night Shyamalan kind of thing, because they hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them. But this Samaritan sees him, has compassion, puts him on his animal, brings him to an inn, washes him, bandages him up, and then pays the innkeeper, says, you take care of this guy, I'll be back, and if you, if you need any more money for what you've done, I'll pay you then. Now, who, who was it who came to Jesus that prompted this story? It was an expert in the law. And the question he asked was, what must I do to be saved? He's saying, what must I do, motivated by law, in response to law, in order to be good enough? How, what can I do to become? That was his question. And Jesus says, well, you know the law. And he's like, well, yeah, love the Lord your God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he pauses and says, but hold up define neighbor. He wants to, as an expert in the law, find that minimum, the bare minimum, and then just barely get over it and say, there, I fulfilled the, the requirements of the law. So Jesus tells this whole story, and he looks at the guy, and he says, now tell me, which of these three was a neighbor to that man? 
So the expert in the law said, tell me what I must do. Give me the requirements, things I must do. And Jesus says, which of them was? I'm going to tell you what you must be, what you must become, and flowing out of that will be what you do. Two very different approaches to good works. And we often, like that expert in the law, come at this from a very preposterous direction. Even within the church, there's this notion that we start at the bottom, and yes, of course, in humility, we do humble ourselves and approach God in a very lowly way, but we don't start at the bottom and then work our way up by degrees until we are in God's presence and stand there justified by our own works. That's not what happens. We have, we've gone through one and a half chapters here of this book of Ephesians, and already twice we have had reference to Christ being not only raised from the dead, but raised up, ascending to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And then in verse 6 here, we read, We were made alive together with Christ, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a sense in which we are even now already ascended to sit in the heavenly places with Jesus. We don't work our way from the bottom up. No, we are carried up into the presence of God. We are washed clean and spotless. We are clothed in spotless linen robes. And then we are sent back down into our ordinary lives where we share the love and mercy and grace of God through the gospel and through good works. Faith working itself out through love, as we read in Galatians 5. So there are three gifts that are described in this little passage. Grace, by its very definition, must be a gift. It can't be merited. Faith, also a gift. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And the good works themselves also are a gift which God prepared beforehand. And that last little section here about God preparing them beforehand, there's been a lot of ink spilled about this, a lot of arguments. I've heard a very solid argument made that what's being described is that God provides for each person kind of their sphere of influence and says there, do good works within that, maybe. I've heard equally solid arguments and convincing arguments that what's being described here is God ordaining particular tasks for us to do that are designed for us just as we are designed for them. And if God is truly sovereign, we don't need to pick between one or the other. Both of these can be what he is describing. God's prepared the way beforehand and along the way said, hey, I've prepared all these good works that you can walk in them. Is there any more frustrating thing than when you're watching a movie and they get to the scene where someone prepares for someone else an elaborate meal or party or activity or fun day or something, and that person doesn't even show up. I get all angsty about that if I'm watching a movie and that comes up. Or is there any greater slight than the person not showing up? Well, God has prepared for his children, those who have been saved by grace through faith, good works beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what we ought to think about the will of God. You know, there's this bizarre view in the church, almost a superstitious view, that God's will for each person is this crazy mystery maze, and you've got to find it and follow it, and if you follow it closely enough and look for the signs, you'll get to the end where you'll be as successful as possible, as if God's goal is your glory. That is nonsense. That's preposterous. God's will is a circle, not a point. If you are not living in sin, you are free to live your life and choose to do what you will. 
And as you go, because he is sovereign, God has already been there beforehand, and he has laid out and prepared for you good works that you might walk in them, just like wherever you go when you are tempted, God has already prepared for you a way out so that you can resist temptation and escape temptation. God meets us where we are. In fact, he's already there before we get there. That's the kind of God we serve. What a blessing, but none of this does us any good if we don't submit to him. And that's those last few words. That we should walk in them. Now, if you have the NIV, the 1984 NIV, the OG NIV, uh, make a little note there where it says to do them. He has created good works for us to do them. And make a little note that says to walk in them. If you've got the newer NIV, the 2011, they've already fixed it for you. But I think it's important because it connects us back to the beginning of this paragraph. And it shows us what Paul is doing when he uses this Hebraism to walk being your conduct, how you live. Your walk is how you live. We talk this way in the church, so it doesn't seem foreign to us at all. If you, if you walk with Jesus, you will walk like Jesus more and more. There's this picture, this wonderful picture that Aaron took of me and Calvin when he was about three or four years old at Hawk Island. It's from behind. We're walking down a wooden walkway. And even though it's a still image and not a video, you can see, and he's this little, I'm this big, you can see that our gait is exactly the same. That this little guy has been walking with his dad, and he's walking like his dad. And when we look at this beautiful picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we see a couple things. First of all, when you follow Jesus, when you're saved by grace through faith, your walk changes. It changes direction. It changes uh, the, the way that you walk changes. In fact, the idea of changing direction and walking in the other direction, it's a pretty good definition of the word repent. In the Old Testament, shuv, to repent, means to change direction. Not only does our walk change, it tells us that our walk matters. When you look at the rest of mankind, which we talked about, this, this whole passage begins, as you were, dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Whoa! So the rest of mankind who were dead in their trespasses are marked by their deeds, by their walk, their works. How then can those of us in living hope not also be marked by our walk and our works? That's the con contrast here. That's the point. In fact, the whole thing here is what we call a chiasm. Key being the X-shaped letter of the Greek alphabet. Frat boys would say chiasm. They're like, oh, I rushed phi kappa chi and like no you rushed p kappa key but okay it, it's the x-shaped one and the, the reason it's called a chiasm is because there's something right in the middle but what comes before and what comes after perfectly mirror each other but are often opposites and that's what we see here the contrast of how we walked before and after before we came to faith and were saved by grace we walked in deeds of darkness we walked according to the passions of the flesh following the devil along the course of this world, all three of which were keeping us imprisoned to death, imprisoned to guilt and shame, with the wrath of God hanging over our heads. Now we see that we are walking in the light, free to explore the good works prepared beforehand by God himself. That is such good news. 
And those good works are there to be walked in when times are amazingly good and when times are tough, to say the least. They're still there. In fact, perhaps it's most important when times are tough. Alexander McLaren, this old Baptist I'm really getting into lately, wrote this. Difficulty is the parent of power, and God arranges our circumstances in order that by wrestling with obstacles, we may gain the strength that throw the world, in order that in sorrows and joys, in the rough places and the smooth, we find occasions for the exercise of the goodness which he lodges potentially in us when he creates us in Christ Jesus. In other words, when times are going well, the litmus test will read follower of Jesus. And when times are hard, the litmus test will still read follower of Jesus. And we will still be looking for where are the good works that I might walk in them. In fact, when times are most difficult is when the church's uh, good works are often most important. James 2.17, we looked at earlier, faith without works, it is dead. Two verses later, he says, hey, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe that God is one is a reference to the creed of Judaism, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. They, they have good doctrine. Hey, you got great doctrine? Awesome. You should have great doctrine. You're doing well, but recognize that even demons have good doctrine. Even, I mean, what is the one thing demons say when they come roaring out of the demonized in the Gospels? They see Jesus and they all shout, you are the Son of God. They have good Christology. They even have an idea of the final judgment and the perhaps second coming of Jesus. Or at least punishment for the wicked because they're begging him, don't, don't cast us into the abyss now. They've got great doctrine and even they respond by shuddering. What, what James is warning against is good doctrine that just sits there as good doctrine and does nothing else. That passage from Titus I read earlier says that we are a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, not just zealous for good doctrine. Good doctrine is good. That's why it's called good doctrine. But if it doesn't give rise to good works... If you can say, oh yes, I know the gospel inside out, and, and you can even be happy that the gospel is true, but if there are no good works that are prompted by it, your faith is dead, and dead faith does not save. We are not zealous just for good doctrine, but also for good works. I think we, we often replace the idea of doing good with simply teaching good in the church. It's very tempting, but it is very, very deadly for the vitality of the church. As Peter in Acts 10 is describing Jesus' ministry, as he preaches, he says that he went about not just teaching, but healing and doing good. If Jesus is our model, we also will go about doing good in our lives. And I think it is such a tragic thing that we often think in the American church, in the Western church, of getting saved as the end of the story. Come up and give your testimony. It starts out with all the juicy stuff at the beginning. Whatever it was, I was running around and sleeping around, and I was drinking and partying, and I was doing all these things, and there's a, wow, this is quite a story. And then it ends with, and then Jesus found me, and I put my faith in him, and I lived happily ever after. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. We've just barely met St. Paul, or old Saul, in the book of Acts, 
when he's knocked to the ground and he is told by Jesus, you're my guy now, you're going to serve me. He's baptized and he, he then becomes the apostle to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And then we follow the rest of his story, which is him walking in the good works that God laid out beforehand for him to walk in. That's the point. You know, I, I'm bummed that the Summer Olympics got, got bumped this year. I do love, it's like the one time I can be in on sports talk is during the Olympics. I, I enjoy the Olympics. And, and one thing I love is the narratives of it, the story of it all, how they'll always say, okay, here's somebody who's, who's the underdog, and here's the story of how they came to become the representative of their country at the Olympics. What a great accomplishment. They started here, and they overcame all this stuff, and here they are today. And yet I've never seen anyone who struts out after all that fanfare and gets down on the starting line, hears the pistol go off, and says, all right, well, I did what I wanted to do, and walks away. I mean, they got there, and, and that's something that they're there. They're an Olympian, and no one can take that away from them. But the point of it was to run the race. And that's what Paul says is the point, too. To run the race, to finish the course, to keep the faith. Or, or John and Jesus in the book of Revelation. To overcome to the end. To finish well. To, to run through that race. And as we go, to say, ah, I know all along the way. You know, like Mario is always collecting coins. Well, we've already got our treasure. We don't need to collect the coins. But as we go, we can say, here, here, here. Wow, God, I see there are several good works you have prepared beforehand for me to do on this very day, and I can bring glory to God. The idea of Olympian going to the Olympics is not just to say, I got here, aren't I great, but rather to say, I'm going to try and win and bring glory to my country. And we don't, we don't find the meaning of salvation in just saying, well, now I'm saved, I will go to heaven, I won't go to hell. Rather, the, the meaning now becomes, I can give glory to my God. Let me do that. And I know it is difficult, and especially times right now, it's sometimes difficult to say, oh, where are the good works? Open your eyes. Look for the little things. You know, it's so easy to say, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go and, and pray and pray and pray for, for peace on earth, and I'll just pray for that, rather than saying, well, I could start with making peace with someone I'm angry with right now. Just do a little bit and know that God is at work. I read a story this past week about a woman who'd been praying several years ago. Lord, I'm just a, I'm a little old woman all alone in my apartment, and I don't know what to do with myself to, to serve you. And God just laid on her heart that there are so many students, uh, the, uh, university students, all around her. And so she went and she just posted these cute little signs that said, Are you homesick? Come to my apartment for tea at 3 p.m. on Thursday. And like two people came and she had tea with them and talked with them and, 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 and then more people came and more people came and she died a couple years ago and there were a dozen people who got up and spoke at her funeral and said, I was homesick and she welcomed me into her home and they had stories about her being kind and hospitable and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Little thing, great results. And these are the sorts of things that God has laid out beforehand for us to do. God has prepared a road for you full of good works, full of things you can do, not to earn your salvation, but to say thank you. Not to become a saint, but to put in the litmus test and say, yeah, I belong to you, and I love to be reminded of that, and I love to bring glory to your name. Beforehand, he was already there. Wherever you go, God has been there. He is waiting for you. 
And you can know for a fact that having been saved by grace, a gift, through faith, a gift, there are good works, gifts, many gifts for you, waiting for you to walk in them. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be spiritually astute, eyes open, looking around through our lives, saying, Lord, where are these good works that I can do? We thank you that we're not trying to settle some score or hit some high score or somehow earn our way into your presence, but rather that we have already been raised up into heavenly places to reign with you. And Lord, we pray that as we live in that reality, we would want it to be manifest in our good works everywhere we go. That we would proclaim the gospel, that we would adorn that gospel with acts of love and deeds of mercy, and that we would show that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus loves sinners. And he came to die and rise again that we might be saved. Amen.